This is the voice of Carnage, and you are listening to Carnage Cast. Hi, everyone. Today we're talking with James Carpio, author of Tales from the Fallen Empire, uh, a setting supplement for Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG from Goodman Games. Hi, James. How are you? I'm doing fine, Tyler. And yourself? I'm pretty good. Thanks for coming on the show. Ah, thank you for having me. It's always uh, it's always great to to come on and just uh, talk about things gaming. So I'm I'm always down. We're delighted to have you. So my ears pricked up when I first heard that you were writing this uh, supplement for the Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG. What what are the tales from the Fallen Empire? Uh, Tales of the Fallen Empire, or from the Fallen Empire, I can never get my own title straight most of the time. Um, is it, kind of a is kind of a mishmash of um, a lot of the sword and sorcery tropes that I've kind of fallen in love with since I was uh, since I was a kid. It, it pretty much sprung from a believe it or not a, a fourth edition D and D game I ran many years ago, uh, where I was just kind of taking bits and pieces of uh, ideas and putting them together. And uh, when Joe Goodman had put out a call for wanting third-party um, developers for his uh, new RPG, uh, it suddenly just clicked in my head to say, that setting would be awesome if I did some some work on it. And so I basically I wrote uh, Joe Goodman. I said, hey, I totally want in on this. Uh, he was very accepting. I, I sent him some of the ideas, and uh, we kind of went from there. But... Um, I guess to give you a little bit on the uh, the the origins of the story, or at least my my origins with the fascination with this sort of thing, was in oh god, I would have to say in the late '80s. Um, I had already played D and D, and I was really into like Greyhawk, and obviously I've I've read uh, a lot of Robert E. Howard and and, and Fritz Lieber and such. So um, the whole the whole concept was an alien, but there was one movie. And as cheeseball as this movie is, it's really what kind of inspired a lot of the ideas behind uh, the setting. Uh, it was a movie, I believe it was produced by Roger Corman, mm-hmm. uh, called The Warrior and the Sorceress with uh, David Carradine. And it was... The movie was was horribly done. The budget was incredibly small. Uh, they actually stole the plot from a, a Kurosawa film, if I'm not mistaken. But it was simply about this one warrior who traveled the wastelands and just kind of became this mercenary until finally he found uh, he found his uh, his place again and completely turned things around. But that movie, with all its uh, complete over-the-top nudity and really bad cheesy rubber monsters and everything else, really, I think, kind of uh, set the pace for how I kind of seen fantasy even years after, or at least the sword and sorcery genre. So that was your 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 first taste of it, or the the one that sort of crystallized what you wanted to get out of it. I, I think the second one, it's just the, the latter, is pretty much that movie kind of finally made me see how it just kind of all put together in a nice package what uh, what sword and sorcery was to me. And, and obviously I, I loved the films that they did for Conan, uh, you know, because, again, I, I loved reading Howard uh, as, a, as a kid mm-hmm. and um, 
you know, a lot of stuff that came after that. But believe it or not, like a lot of Roger Corman stuff, like Deathstalkers, and um, although I don't think Corman was involved in Beastmaster, but just a lot of those films really kind of captured my imagination and kind of just made me uh, just really want to go in that route. And obviously when TSR released Dark Sun in the early 90s, I think that's where I just kind of uh, that that has always been my favorite setting. Just that sort of like dark, ominous, um, almost po- post-apocalyptic fantasy, right? Uh, of just you know desperate times and and desperate people. Is, is that how you'd characterize the Fallen Empire? Yes, Tales from the Fallen Empire is about a uh, a fictional world uh, called Leviathan, and going back into the the history of the world is that there was this you know in the beginning there was a void and there was nothing um and these these entities who would eventually become to call themselves dragons uh took form and pretty much kind of got tired of in a sense looking at each other and warred against each other uh in this war they managed to take down their leader who was called leviathan and according to the legends, his uh, his body became the world, his eyes became the moon, his blood became the water, and so on and so forth. And even after this happened, the other dragons continued to war on and started to take um, various peoples from uh, different realms uh, of reality, what we call the nine realms, which is kind of the cosmology. Mm-hmm. Um the world at at that point was kind of ruled by this uh, race called that called themselves the first men. Uh, the first men were these almost um, just almost like the uh, the Aryans of Earth legend. They were these just massive, huge, perfect specimen of men. You know, nearing seven feet tall and muscular and uh, just warriors through and through. And uh, they they basically carved out empires in the world, and ultimately their magic kind of their magic and their inability to just not fight each other pretty much dragged them down, until a second age of man came about, and uh, this is kind of where we're at in the story is that um, finally within the first age, uh, all the first men fell, the great sorcerer kings who pretty much were. Uh, ruling each of the nations kind of um, succumbed to the, the barbarians at the gate uh, and man just pretty much kind of filled in the spots. So now we're looking at this kind of world that's kind of being rebuilt anew, um, trying to get away from all this horrible things that the, the sorcerer kings and uh, the first men had done to the world. And obviously with that, there are, um, you know, fantastic monsters and uh, old old civilizations and old keeps and uh, things to explore. So that's kind of the uh, the gist of the setting. So it's it's sounding like one of those big open sandboxes where, you, where a group of adventurers could start anywhere and wind up anywhere. Uh, exactly. And that's what it's kind of meant to be. Uh, it's very human centric, although I do have a few uh non-human races in there for for players to uh to try out again kind of going back to that um uh hyborian age sort of fantasy where it's really just about the stories are about man Mm -hmm. and and his trials and tribulations 
Although the, there are a few non-humans that, that are floating around, uh, there's a race called the Uruk, um, which are the man-apes. And you can't have good sword and sorcery without man-apes. No, you cannot. So pretty much uh, sentient guerrilla warriors who come from uh, the jungles in the south, uh, they were actually created by the, um, by the first men in this magical, um, almost kind of a transhuman sort of thing where they were uh, magically blending DNA of uh, gorillas and man in order to create the, uh, the perfect soldier. Uh, and when the, um, when the age of the first age kind of fell, these warriors kind of just said, I'm, I'm getting out of here. And they, they went to the south pretty much to uh, create their own kingdoms. Mm-hmm. There are also a, a race called the Draki. Uh, the Draki are uh, almost sentient velociraptors, um, but not going in the sense of kind of the creepy, ignorant lizard man. Uh, I've kind of modeled them after, uh, if you remember the show Land of the Lost. Yes. Uh, and the Slee Stacks. Yes. So uh, the Draki are actually aliens they're they're not they were brought in when the first men were brought in ages ago by the dragons and the draki are actually just looking to find a way home Mm -hmm. and they they have um odd technology and magic well it's not even magic it's just odd technology that um no one quite understands and obviously people just kind of see it as magic because you know this this couldn't possibly exist other than you know it being magic right because that's the context they have Exactly. Realistically, there's no elves, there's no dwarves, um, so any of that, any of that Tolkien, uh, you know, the Tolkien tropes are are completely out of the way. This is kind of a very primal, uh, very almost um, Iron Age or, or Bronze Age sort of uh, a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it going uh, almost going all the way back to Babylon with the dragons and the the fallen dragons sort of forming the earth. Yeah, that, that's a good catch. That's actually, yeah, where um, the, the whole creation was kind of inspired by with um, with those mythos. And there's a couple other things mixed in there, too. Each of the cultures uh, in the setting are kind of based on, on Earth settings. Uh, Vul, which the, the source, the, um, the actual book will kind of concentrate on in the world, is uh, pretty much my idea of uh, Babylon or Mesopotamia. Uh, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. So kind of not a lot of technology. People that are there, if they have anything, it's usually controlled by uh, the last remaining ones that call themselves the Sorcerer Kings. And they pretty much control everything. But uh, you're looking outside of the major city-states in, in the country, uh, what you're pretty much seeing is a lot of uh, poor uh, peasants, a lot of slavery, a lot of warlords that people gather to in order to, you know, keep safe and have food and water. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the massive river that splits it is uh, Kesh, which is kind of my my proto Egypt, which has actually kind of become a um, a trade federation. So there's a lot of merchants. There's uh, the city of Shesh, which is a giant um, elephant golem that travels around the the country. And uh, on its back is a marketplace. A whole market on the back of an elephant column. Yeah, that, that just travel. It's a traveling city, and this is kind of the pride of, of, of Kesh. Awesome. Um, to the north, you, we have our, um, you know, our, our kind of uh, pseudo-Norwegian. We have the, um, the Aesir, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we also have um, uh, the Carthian, who are pretty much the first men who ran away from after the first age ended and decided to live in the mountains, and over time just kind of mingled with um, humans. So uh, taken as kind of my uh, Sumerian analog of these, uh, you know, these perfect uh, just men who really don't like anyone else and usually keep them themselves in the mountains. But obviously, as time goes on, they, they travel down. Right. So you, you've sort of been selecting from the buffet of history and, and pulling this role together. Exactly. Cause, so, yes, it is possible to do really, um, really original fantasy. And it has been done. I don't know if uh, you remember a game, I think it was called the... Oh, God, I can't remember. Uh, Jeroon, but I can't remember the full title of the game. I've heard the name, yeah. Um, Jeroon was was a fantasy game. It was done sometime, I believe, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. But it just had concepts that were completely um, alien to anything of Earth's culture. Yeah. Um, it, and it was an amazing setting. Uh, so it's not to say that original fantasy can be done, but when, in general, when you're looking at uh, fantasy in a whole, and again, this could just be my opinion on it, is um, a lot of times players really need something to identify with. Exactly. Um, so when they're thinking about what kind of character I want to play, so you know, if you've read, you know, if you've read any, uh, if you know history, and you're like, ah, oh, well. I want to I want to play like some sort of a, an Egyptian or I want to play some sort of a Norseman or I want to play like an, an African warrior or anything like that. There's at least analogs to these things within the, the setting. So at least it's kind of a comfort zone of like, hey, I'm used to playing this sort of character. Um, you know, the, what what can you offer me? Yeah, it's, it's uh, an easy way for people to hook into something where they start with a familiar and then begin to branch out into what's different about this world. Uh, exactly, and and I think setting is uh, completely important because if you if you don't have a good idea to or a good setting to grasp onto, um, a lot of times you're then just playing a trope, and a lot of times when you're then just playing a trope, um, the game becomes boring after a while. What, earlier you mentioned sandbox, and that's definitely something I wanted to go for in this. Um, what a sandbox setting, you're not so much worrying about what's happening in one particular area. It's really just kind of the players have this huge world to explore. And the GM, if anything, just has to kind of, you know, make sure that uh, when the players arrive in a new area, they have multiple branches to go off on. So it's, uh, you know, not a jump on the train and, uh, take that railway to the next uh, part of the scenario right don't don't you don't have to fish around for a clue you're you're exploring the town so are there elements in this book that a gm's going to find useful for players like that who are careening around of their own free will and the gm's never quite sure where they're going to go well the one thing that uh that i've really tried to do with the uh with the writing of the game is just add a lot of a lot of different uh, choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, you'll probably see also me going back to some of the um, some of the old school way of doing things of just putting charts. Uh, just so if the game master, the players are in a new area, there can be easily uh, 
plot seeds and things like that for uh, for the game master to roll on, uh, just to kind of come up with something randomly, or just some nicely fleshed out uh, towns or uh, just even adventure seeds within the the text that they can grasp onto. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely, you know. And again, it's 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 really a, a do-it-yourself sort of setting. But I can I can totally understand where you're coming from. What you're saying is that yeah, there's going to be uh, game masters who might pick up the book just based on the cover or just the blurb, and get it and go, wow, there's no focus here. What you know, what do I do with it? So yeah. sandboxes can be intimidating. Exactly. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with. Um, I think the guy his last name is McKinney. Uh, did a, a setting called Carcosa. Yeah, it's Jeffrey McKinney. Yeah, and um, that that is incredibly sandboxy. And but I, the thing I really appreciated that what's built into that is pretty much every hex on that map has something attached to it, even if it's just one sentence that says, you know, the lizard king is angry. Mm-hmm. Um, you land on that hex, and there is your seed right there. You know, um, unfortunately, you know, that sort of detail is is kind of maddening and just really just didn't go with how uh, the book uh, is coming together. Mm-hmm. But that that sort of thing is appreciated, though, especially when you're when you're doing very large sandboxes like Carcosa, where, um, you know, you're going from one hex to one hex, which is, you know, X amount of miles and just not to have anything there is kind of like, well, what do I do here now? I, you know, pick flowers. That's, uh, yeah. I, I, uh, that's like the old Baldur's Gate games where you could wander through wilderness areas and find nothing, but they were there and you had to explore them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and also too, um, it, it's, it's kind of a hard balance and I, and I really don't want to, you know, kind of bore you with the whole, idea of modern gamers compared to you know this the whole osr thing which i'm i'm very pleased to be kind of part of the old school revolution rebellion revival Rena- renaissance yeah it's some r word <laughs> put in there but again getting back to uh the whole the whole like um the sandbox and modern game design and everything like that is that modern game design tends to be so focused that sandboxes really just sometimes don't work Mm -hmm. because we're so used to trying to find a rule or needing something to take us by the hand to show us what the next thing is to do. It's it's almost like looking at a a flow chart, right? You know, put sword in hand, swing sword, roll die. Um, But with a lot of the old rules or older systems where really there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of rules, I think sandboxes work a lot better with those particular systems just for the fact that it really has to be a social contract between the GM and the players, and uh, there's just a little bit more creativity involved. As where newer game system design makes the game master more of a mediator, uh, someone who who is a judge, who is seriously like, all right, this is what's going on. Oh, there's a rule discrepancy. Let's try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Let's look through the rule book. You know, you're playing a game of, um, you know, uh, Mulvey Cook basic D&D. You don't have that luxury. If something goes completely awry, there's not, hey, Game Master, look in the book. Because the book just might just tell you, okay, well, if, you know, this problem arises, you need to figure out what to do. 
So game mastering older systems is really just kind of the, someone being on their toes and be able to to kind of just make it up and go and roll with the punches. And I think what sandboxes, you need to have that uh, free form game master and players compared to players who really just need to be led by the hand uh, to you know to explore such a thing because as soon as they go into the first area and see there's nothing there there's nothing mechanically you know no there's no skill i'm gonna roll my flower picking skill ah, i got a 19 do i find any flowers uh, it doesn't work like that it's really the players need to be able to say all right cool um I, is there a tree? Okay, cool. I go over to the tree. Uh, you know, I, I dig around the tree. Is there any etchings? Do I see anything? Mm -hmm. I, I think you need more of that play than I roll my d20 and my look at tree skill. I got a 27. That's over 25. What do I get? Yeah, because in, in the first example, the players are sort of building in expectations and showing the GM where they could go with it. But when you're just rolling a die and reading off a number, it's like it's completely on the GM. And you, there's there's more of a give and take in those in those open ended games. Exactly. Now um, to go a little bit about the the core system that uh, Tales from the Fallen Empire is um, is being uh, developed for mm -hmm. uh, Goodman Games. Uh, they they've had a line for uh, some years now of Dungeon Crawl Classics, and Dungeon Crawl Classics uh, was just pretty much a series of modules that were I think done for uh, 3.5 and then slowly they just started branching out they even done some of the dungeon crawl classic stuff for some of the retro games uh, i think there's a couple of modules out there too that um do like first edition ad and d although it's not referred to as that it's you know uh early editions or uh the world's greatest early editions of the world's greatest role-playing games because uh wizards of the coast is very protective of their uh their imprint and uh, property, which they should. They, yeah. they own it. Like you do. You know, exactly. But so last year, um, I think it was around the time of free RPG day. So we're actually, we're probably looking at close to a year now. Uh, Goodman Games announced their RPG called Dungeon Crawl Classics. So with the total, um, I, I think, pretty much uh, gloat of... Uh, clones out in the market you know when i first seen this it was kind of like yeah do i really need another copy of labyrinth lord with different rules on my shelf right because um for people at home who are still catching up with the osr the clones are uh essentially re-expressions of the original fantasy role-playing game so that other people can publish for them yeah exactly it's just because um after the whole piracy deal back in 2008 when watsi pulled all their original material from uh, PDF, because for a time there, you could buy uh, original D&D, you could buy basic, you could buy advanced, uh, all through like drive through RPG or RPG Now. Mm -hmm. But when they had all the piracy problems with, um, with fourth edition, they made a decision to pull all uh, digital content uh, off the market. So with that, so people could no longer, unless you went to eBay, uh, to get the books, there was no other way to get it. So uh, the clones came about to pretty much offer people a way to continue playing their games uh, without having to, like, go to eBay or try to hunt down that one copy of, you know, um, 
you know, uh, Men- Menser's Basic or anything like that. Right. When I first seen this, it was just kind of like, you know, I already have Wizards and Sorcery. I already have you know, Labyrinth Lord and the Advanced Companion. I- I'm a big fan of clones. Um, I own the regular books, but I like what some of the stuff the clones did. Um, actually, the only one I've never really played is Osric, which I think is kind of one of the um, the forerunners uh, of the clones that, uh, and the OSR movement. Right. So Free RPG came out, uh, Day came out, and they, they put out a quick start guide of the rules. And as soon as I read them, I'm like, wow, th- this completely isn't any clone I've ever seen. Um, pretty much to, to kind of explain it for those who've played castles and crusades which uh, troll lord games puts out and it's kind of a reimagining of first edition if like you took first edition and married it with um dnd 3.0 and took out all the feats and all the crazy stuff uh that made castles and crusades it's AD&D in a sense with um ascending ac instead of descending and without all the the crazy stuff that uh, third edition kind of threw at us. So if if I look at that as kind of uh, an analog, uh, DCC Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG is pretty much what Castles and Crusades is to first edition, is what DCC is to um, basic D and D. Okay. So you're looking at ascending AC. You're looking at um, cl- race as class. So not like race and class separation. Mm-hmm. But what they the the amazing thing they did is they kind of added a lot of things to it that uh, really, in my opinion, should have been uh, in some of the in some of the the clones or even in some of the newer game design. For example, one of the uh, core principles of Dungeon Call Classics is called the character funnel. So what this this concept is is that at the beginning of a game, and you don't have to follow it; it's totally an optional rule. But what you end up doing is you create four, uh, up to four zero-level characters. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have a; they don't really even have a class. They just kind of are characters. They have hit points. Um, you pick a profession for them, and you roll uh, a few stats. So the main purpose of the character funnel is that you're taking these characters through a dungeon for the first time. Like you know, so if you and your friends are like you have four friends playing. Uh, you know, you're looking at, what, 16 characters going through. Mm-hmm. And pretty much through um, character death and attrition, uh, you finally end up with one character who survived the ordeal, which is now going to go on to be your first level character. Okay. So it's it's a really neat concept of... Um, starting out with you know zero to hero sort of thing of like you're this nobody you're a farmer you're uh some guy works on a ship or sells meat in a market and by the time the adventure is over uh there's a lot less of you that went in and those who survived are uh are the adventurers they're the ones that are going to start their career yeah fate selected them to survive exactly when you get to the classes now, they, I think there's a lot of other things that are really neat. Uh, for example, wizards uh, in Dungeon Crawl Classics. And I did a variant in my book called The Sorcerer, but I'll, I'll explain the classes and I can go over some of my variants uh, with you. But for the example, the wizard, um, the magic, first of all, magic is neat because every spell is a random chart. 
So when you cast a spell, you have to add in all these factors. You're going to roll a die and you're going to get a number. Mm-hmm. How high that number is, the higher the number, the better. Your spell goes off and it does um, cooler things. Like there's a there's a spell equivalent to a fireball. So at low ends, yeah, you're going to maybe torch someone in front of you. At high ends, and I remember running this at Total Con, uh, someone had did the spell and like maxed out uh, on on that roll, and they pretty much just completely torched like this entire room of things that they were fighting. <laughs> and again, it's just spells are like that. And if they don't go off, uh, nothing happens. If you roll incredibly low or you fumble, you actually have a chance of going through corruption, meaning that this magic that you're trying to cast is now warping you, and it either affects you mentally or it'll actually warp your body, turn your hands into claws and things like that. Mm -hmm. So Um, magic is neither predictable nor safe in this world. Exactly. So magic users who smugly walk around thinking that they're going to cast something and, and do something really cool might, or they might just end up you know, with their their leg turning into a fin or losing their nose or just completely going insane in the process. Also, wizards have patrons. Um, they can make deals with devils and demons, make packs, which also kind of give them interesting things to their magic, but also can uh, adversely affect them as well. Uh, clerics can go through disapproval from their deities. Uh, by straying off the path. Mm -hmm. Fighters actually get a really neat ability to do what they call daring deeds. So on top of it, you also, not only, you know, do you end up with like really cool critical ranges and your critical range is going up every level, uh, you can actually finagle it so you can give so like give up so many points to eventually do a daring deed and these daring deeds are just like incredibly amazing feats you know just skewering two people at once or decapitating or doing all this wonderful stuff uh so the fighter is uh definitely a um a class that you know you're just not taking it because i swing a sword and hit uh, the fighter just has incredible abilities that just really make it a unique class. And the last one is is the thief, which uh, backstab is kind of interesting because whenever you actually get your backstab off, you don't do triple damage or anything like that. You end up actually doing crits. Hmm. Um, and again, all, criticals are these these massive tables that have so if you're if you were a big fan of Rollmaster back in the day yeah you're gonna love the charts because it's just every possible thing you can think of um in the game i ran at total con uh the thief used a backstab to actually throw a um a lantern at the back of the head of somebody which succeeded which rolled on the critical chart to something incredibly vicious and he ended up like killing somebody by throwing a lantern at the back of their head uh so again it's just a lot of a lot of randomness and a lot of um a lot of cool things that each of the classes can do mm-hmm. um your elf uh dwarf and and um you know elf dwarf and halfling are the other standard classes and each of them kind of 
you know, like the dwarf is more like the fighter. The elf is kind of like a fighter magic user. And the halfling is kind of a cross between thief and, um, and a fighter. So, but it is racist class. So you not really, if you're playing elf, you're an elf. And mm-hmm. that's really about it. As far as the core book goes, there's a lot of little interesting twists and turns to how, say, basic D&D would have played out. But again, there's just a lot of good meaty bits to just kind of uh, play with. In fact, DCC is awesome for a, a sandbox campaign because mostly everything you do is going to be attached to some really cool random effect. Whatever you try, something's going to happen. Exactly. And a lot of even if it's a failure, it's it's amusing. So I could even just say I can just even see in doing one level of a dungeon with this game, no planning whatsoever other than maybe rolling on a couple of random charts to see what's in there and just letting the adventurers go through it and letting them just do their stuff because there's just so much like random mayhap and chaos that goes on that the game is just kind of fun within itself. Can you can you tell us about any particular elements of the the DCC RPG that that said to you this this is what this setting is for. These two need to go together. Actually the the wizard after reading the wizard was um I think the thing that sold me on it and was the thing that once I saw uh, Joe Goodman put up on his forums that uh, he's looking for possibly looking for third party people. I was there. I was just like, me, 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 (laughs) take me. Um, And uh, so wizards, like I mentioned earlier is um, they, they make packs with demons and devils Mm -hmm. in order to get their magic. And that is a serious, serious trope uh, with, with, um, with sword and sorcery. Right. Uh, You see it a lot in the Conan stories. Where, you know, certain wizards are, you know, either uh, they have witches, they, they make packs with devils and demons. And, you know, if they, they have to satisfy them by giving them sacrifices and things like that. So the, uh, the wizard in DCC was honestly what kind of made me want to uh, develop the setting with that particular system. Uh, just, just for that whole concept of having a patron uh, for magic other than... I'm just this arcane wizard who reads his books and, you know, and that sort of thing. Because, mm-hmm. and, and just in my vision of how magic should work, magic is something that really has a consequence. It shouldn't just be, I, I freely cast, and the only thing bad that can happen to me is a house cattle kill me at first level, or, you know, I get ran through by the orc at, you know, fifth level. Right. What I did is for. Tales from the Fallen Empires, I uh, created a um, a variant of the wizard uh, from the book. So wizards in the book can uh, cast, uh, cast spells. They go through corruption. Uh, also, they can do something called spell burn, which is they can sacrifice their, their own attributes uh, in order to um, boost a spell. Uh, those attributes come back, but it's after... Uh, a long amount of rest and so on and so forth. So my my thought is, well, that's awesome that wizards would do this, take their own life force, but sorcerers are usually really cold-hearted SOBs yes. who realistically could wouldn't want to give up anything of their own to cast magic because that's what the rest of humanity is for. Yes. 
So in the variant that I had done for um, for Tales uh, from the Fallen Empire is that sorcerers actually can take the life essence from other things around them to, to boost their magic. So one of which is they have an attuned dagger or weapon. So what they can do is they can go up during a combat and completely shank somebody, take the hit points that are taken from... Uh, from that person and then spell burn those points to give them a boost. Mm-hmm. Um, they can take it from themselves, but you know, why, why do that? Also, there's a second ability that they can do where if they're in an area where there is um, lush greenery or animal life or anything like that, uh, they can do a small ritual. It takes a little bit of time, but they can just pretty much suck the life energy out of everything around them to take that as kind of a, a pool of energy uh, to spell burn with. Which also uh, brings you back to the, the blighted landscape that so often surrounds a wizard's tower. Exactly. And, and definitely it is a, um, it is kind of a, a hats off to dark sun. Uh, Cause dark sun had a, a group of um, a wizards that called themselves the defilers. And it's pretty much why dark sun or Athos was in the, uh, the, sh- the shape it was in because it was once this lovely, vibrant world until uh, the wizards and sorcerers pretty much sucked it dry, uh, building magical power. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so my, my wizard variant, the sorcerer, are more or less these very devious um, uh, people who really just enjoy stealing life from other things. Uh, not only that, where Dungeon Crawl Classic uh, wizards can opt to not uh, take a demon patron uh, for sorcerers it is is mandatory at first level they go through the ritual uh, to bind that demon to them and then after that they are they're pretty much at the whim of this demon or their their patron to uh, to gain their magic mm-hmm. and uh, and and that and also uh, there is an additional stat which is called ka which is uh from the Egyptian for life force or life energy. And uh, as, as the wizard or as the sorcerer um, does things that are not pleasing to his master or um, starts straying away from the path of just complete um, evil in a sense, they act, it starts affecting their sanity. So as they, as they kind of stray from their path of, um, weird ways uh it does affect their sanity and can uh cause derangements so it's a class with a lot of fun built in is what it sounds like yeah it's it's i think it's definitely going to be a challenging class to play because uh, again most people i know who like to play wizards really like just to play these aha i have this spell book and i can cast but a character that actually is really powerful to the point where you kind of if you don't read the fine print um you know, you're you're not going to have a lot of fun with it if that's not what you're going for. Yeah. Um, I also have done a cleric variant uh, of the witch, where um, the witch can go back and forth from either taking um, wizard spells or cleric spells, but uh, they're a little bit more limited in what they can do, but they can actually take those spells and create potions, which they can carry on them. Uh, so, and the witch also has a bunch of um, alchemy and um, 
uh, apothecary skills that the uh, the sorcerer say wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of uh, new classes involved. Uh, there's the barbarian, which can, uh, which kind of has a a berserk mechanic in it, which actually allows you to, because as I mentioned earlier with fighters, fighters uh, every level their crit ranges get higher and higher. Mm-hmm. So when a, a barbarian actually goes berserk, their crit level, even so they might be a first level barbarian, their crit level can jump up to level four while going through this, um, you know, this anger or this hate uh, for X amount of rounds. Uh, plus they, um, plus they're, you know, they're, they're good mountaineers. They're, they're definitely good at survival, things like that. A little bit more on the kind of generic trope of barbarian, but that's what I was kind of going for. Mm-hmm. There's uh there's pirate which is kind of self-explanatory. The the one class that I've been kind of still I've been kind of taking apart uh deconstructing and reconstructing which is the class I'm referring to as the wanderer. And uh the wanderer is kind of my uh my tribute to the Roger Corman film that kind of kind of got me thinking about this to begin with. Uh the character that uh David Carradine played in the movie uh, Cain was from a uh, a holy order uh, of a I don't know if it was a god they never really quite explained but he was uh, from an order called the Order of Homorak and the Homoraks were actually paladins apparently according to the storyline at one time who pretty much um, protected the land but since the world fell apart um, the order disbanded and uh, Cain, the char- David Carradine's character, kind of just became this mercenary. And it wasn't until he was confronted by a priestess of his religion uh, in the storyline that he kind of realized, hey, wait a minute, I'm not really this horrible person after all. And, you know, kind of took up the good fight again uh, to kind of save the day at the end of the movie. So my my wanderers are kind of an, a tribute and analog to um, uh the the movie's Order of Homorak. So basically the Wanderers are these um, uh, former protectors who, when pretty much the First Age fell, uh, dedicated themselves to becoming these poverty-stricken wanderers that walk through the lands and pretty much go into towns. They're like marshals in a sense, where they go into areas where a warlord may have people oppressed and they go in and infiltrate and pretty much try to take down the uh, the tyranny in the area. Mm-hmm. So e- even though they're kind of a more of kind of a solo focused character, they're kind of a combination of um, uh, warrior, assassin, and monk. So they're these um, kind of multifaceted um, jack of all trades sort of characters, which has been kind of the big problem because when you start going for that sort of mindset with a character. Uh, they're spread too thin. So they either become these powerhouses that everyone wants to play because you can't, they're unstoppable, or they just become these very weak characters because since they can do everything, it has to be balanced. And suddenly, you know, they're really kind of good at nothing. So right. they don't do anything very well. So, uh, so the, the trick has been tried to keep the flavor of the original concept of the character without, either making it too powerful or too weak. And how is that process going? I guess you could say it's going. I think we're in the uh, fifth revision of it. 
but I am hopefully at this point we're kind of going through the first round of editing uh, with everything, so I'm hoping to at least get uh, multiple play tests in before we actually sit down for the final edit, which is probably looking at this point to be probably the end of July. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned earlier that the uh, the this the, the, this world is something you've been working on for a while before you ever encountered uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. Yes. What sort of process did you have to go through to to bring the two together where they didn't, you know, the corners where they may not have necessarily met as well as they could have? You mean like marrying the setting to the system? Right. Actually, believe it or not, the the system worked really well. And I think that's one of the things that kind of drew me to it is when I saw that uh, quick start they gave away on Free RPG Day Mm -hmm. uh, last year. Just looking over the classes alone um, just really brought visions of that setting into my head. You know, because the setting actually was sitting on a, a blog for some years. Because uh, that was like the first, I think, f- some of the ideas came a little bit earlier, but when it finally all came together, it was for a fourth edition game. And I put everything up on a blog for my players to look at and everything. And uh, then the game, as as most of my fourth edition games went, it kind of came and went very quickly. And the information just sat on that blog for years. And I had always wanted to do something with it, but it really wasn't until I read that quick start and it just went, wow, this totally is making me think of, um, you know, uh, Tales from the Fallen Empire. At that time, I think it was called like Tales of the Warrior Born or something like that. But um yeah no really the the marrying of the system and the the setting was they're almost to my mind just kind of made for each other well that certainly makes the development process process much smoother oh it it definitely was i i think right now the one of the last challenges besides just kind of fine-tuning the classes is um the magic because Mm -hmm. like i had mentioned before mad the mat the spells are um just crazy as far as uh having just at least the core description and then writing a chart for each individual spell Mm -hmm. and um but right now um i'm actually speaking with another osr author um michael curtis and we're kind of going through negotiations at this point um seeing if i can get him interested in coming on to uh, work on the magic chapter uh because one it would just be great to have someone who's also um who's also known in the industry, who's done a lot of uh, uh, stuff as as far as developer, and he's also done a couple of uh, famous OSR dungeons. I think they're called Stonehell, uh, which you can get through Lulu. And, uh, and he's done some amazing work. So, if, And he's also, I think, done some work for Goodman Games, too, so it should be a no-brainer for him. But it, it's just right now bringing on uh, freelancers and, and budget and everything like that, that's where it kind of gets a little on the crazy side. So we're going to have to see on that one. So th- this book is going to be completely, it's uh, it's not, uh, I'm going to refer to it as indie press only in the sense that it's, um, it's just coming from a very small publishing house, which is my uh, chapter 13 press. Mm-hmm. And I've learned over the past year, especially with uh, the, our project Spooky Beans that just finished up, that artwork um, and 
various things like that, writing, uh, are costly. Yeah. Um, Spooky Beans, I'm very fortunate. Uh, ben Morgan, who is also the co-author uh, on the book, um, is a wonderful artist in that sort of uh, style of art. He does very kind of Tim Burton-y, uh, Jonan Vasquez sort of artwork, which Spooky Beans was pretty much, uh, you know, kind of inspired by. So that was really great. I think the only expenses that we put out of pocket was to hire um, uh, actually a local Connecticut artist uh, to go ahead and do um, the cover and uh, also do a couple of interior pieces for it. Uh, Nick Palazzo, that's, that's the artist's name. But Tales from the Fallen Empire falls into a different category because we're spooky beans we kind of had an in-house artist to do everything um ben's art style doesn't really fall towards um what we're looking for in a sense so we've had to go to outside outside people now eric quigley who did the cover art um did an amazing job if you look and um I'll definitely give the information for the show notes where you can see the cover because it's out there on the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, Eric Quigley did this. It looks like a 1930s, 1940s pulp sword and sorcery cover. It's just it's beautiful uh, painting. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. But again, things like that, even though Eric gave me a really good price on it, it's, it's still an expense. Um, I'm having... Uh, Michael Lavoy, who's done some artwork for AEG for the um, uh, Legends of the Five Ring card game, uh, do some of the interior artwork. Uh, and it's just been pretty much picking up um, artists here and there who I can get to uh, work at a good cost. And I've been fortunate so far in finding them. But ultimately, the artwork alone... Um, realistically will probably end up uh, kind of looking over the $2,000 range once, uh, you know, and, and granted for some games, that's really cheap, but for a, for a little indie, you know, press at uh, company, uh, 2000 is 2000, you know? Yeah. That's a significant chunk of your operating costs. Uh, exactly. And then, uh, right now, again, looking to bring on a freelancer who I know would do an excellent job. Uh, again, that's just, again, it's more cost compounded. And then when you start going into the printing process of it, then you're, you know, you got to get all that set up and, and everything else. So it's, um, you know, I kind of wish that it was easy as just kind of typing everything up and, uh, you know, putting it out there because life would just be so much simpler. But um, in this day and age, especially when uh, there's just such amazing books coming out of all different companies in every different directions, you really have to have something out there that just says that, A, your cover tells your story, and B, something that's going to make someone walk by it and go, this looks freaking cool. I don't have time to read it, but I'm going to fork down the money for it. Yep. Not just walk by it, but scroll by it on a web page or click the link on Twitter that somebody's put, putting her out there. Oh, exactly. My my bookshelves are stuffed with books that I kind of wandered by and said, this looks neat. I don't have any time to read it, but eh, okay, $40 here. I'll bring it home and read it. And, and It never usually makes the reading part. It usually makes the, I'll put this one here yeah. <laughs> part of it. This book looks great right here on this shelf. Exactly. It's color-coded, you know, so mm -hmm. I don't know. 
And just another process of getting the game going where it's um, while the writing part is is difficult, um, at least the writing's free. I own the computer and I don't charge myself. But uh, you know, but honestly, in, in any project, you're going to want to have. Um, you know, if if you're that awesome of a writer, then then God bless. You're gonna you know pump out something awesome. But um, even uh, a lot of people have some really great games out there. They they always have uh, a few writers and developers behind them, because realistically, um, you know, you sometimes just need uh, someone else with a different perspective to come in and just really add that bit of oomph to your book that you may have not been able to give it. And I, I think that's another thing that authors should realize is that, hey, if you're stuck in an area, something's really just kind of not coming away from you, maybe it's time to just say, hey, look, I know this writer, or I've met this writer here, and he's done some amazing stuff. Um, hey, man, how would you like to, you know, freelance or, you know, just even some some writers even to the effect will say, whatever dude I don't, I don't want any money i just want to be part of it so mm-hmm. uh you know and you, and you will find that as well mm-hmm. where in the, the the race to the finish line is tales from the fallen empire is it is it i, I know you're you mentioned uh c- continuing the play test before the, the final edit but how, what's the what's what's the second half of the the journey look like uh right now the um Believe it or not, the book is sitting in a, in a Dropbox folder uh, with a couple other people who are, are helping me develop it. And um, pretty much what we're doing now is just taking the content that's already been written and right now just getting it into the chapter formats mm-hmm. and putting the last finishing touches on uh, writing on the chapters. So um, I'm probably looking at that going on probably till the end of May. And then once June starts rolling around, as that's when it's going to then start going into the uh, the final edits. Um, it's it's kind of also awesome to have a girlfriend who um, was an English major in, in edits. <laughs> so uh, it's it's not like um, you know just kind of having to go to someone and go please edit this for me please look at this you know yeah. But then you have to look her in the eye when she points out all your errors. Oh yeah, no. Um, that, I will tell you one thing that is, uh, Mary is. Uh, she will hand me back uh, work that looks like a, um, a you know, uh, a third grade English teacher just handed it back to you, with just like you know, red dashes here and question marks there, and but it's a wonderful thing because how else am I gonna? You know, you learn from that. Yep. You, you you don't you know after you make the mistake a couple of times you kind of start to realize that hey wait a minute nope I'm not going to do that again because I know that is wrong. Well done. It's a learning experience. Uh, definitely. Well, James, thank you very much for coming on the show to tell us about Tales from the Fallen Empire. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts for the audience about uh, about the setting? It's it's very true to its uh, its inspiration. Uh, definitely, if you're really a fan of uh, just really early sword and sorcery stories, uh, if you're a fan of Howard, Moorcock, um, Burroughs, uh, Lieber, uh, it's definitely something to uh, to pick up and take a look at. And, uh, you know, even if you, um, and I will just say this, even if you just glance over Tales from the Fallen Empire, uh take a look at Dungeon Crawl Classics, the RPG, 
because honestly, you will find a a new way to enjoy and experience uh, the game that has has kind of been a a fan favorite for you know uh, since like 1974. So it's definitely worth the buy. Yeah, it's it's proven its staying power. Yeah, definitely. Where should people go to learn more about Tales from the Fallen Empire and Dungeon Crawl Classics? Uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, you can check out at um, at Goodman Games. Uh, I think it's just goodmangames.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if you go to the forums under third-party uh, publishers, uh, there's actually a Tales from the Fallen Empire thread uh, going on. Uh, currently, it's it's been kind of... Uh, dead just because I, I haven't really posted to it all that often. Mm-hmm. But um, it has like the cover there and any updates that we do, it, we usually post there. Um, if you want direct news from us and something that's updated a little bit more often, uh, you can go to uh, chapter13press.com and uh, you'll find uh, on the side there'll be links to our various games, one of which is uh, Tales from the Fallen Empires. And when you click on that, it'll bring you to the news page. So uh, we're definitely looking forward to hearing more about the game as it as it gets closer to publishing. And I, I uh, oh, and are you running it anywhere? Um, currently, I have. Uh, the last time I ran it was at uh, TotalCon. Uh, most most of it, honestly, now will be going on towards um, uh, home playtesting for a while. Mm-hmm. But I actually plan to run a um, a special session. Actually, more or less a uh, f- every the final edit and everything session at um, at Kineticon this year, and uh, so so people have the chance to sort of preview the the setting before they before the book uh, hits the shelves. Exactly, and I'm gonna have uh, have some swag made up, uh, some buttons and uh, various other things with the cover and some of the artwork on it, so uh, you know people can take home something to kind of go, hey, this is coming out soon. Cool. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on the show, and best of luck with the book. All right, Tyler, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Carnage Cast, a production of NNEG LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit us at www.carnagecon.com. <laughs>